the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Everybody, welcome to the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. You can find us on Twitter at Common Good Talk. Find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. <laughs> Go ahead, subscribe, rate, review, and uh, we are grateful for those of you who do that. Well, happy Wednesday. How are you today, man? I'm so much better after that introduction. I feel very energetic today. Find our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going full radio voice today. (laughs) Get your popcorn here. (laughs) I'm going full, but uh, no, it's a good day. Glad to be together. How how is your Wednesday? So far, so good. Okay, great. So far, so good. (laughs) Can't complain with it. You know, I love the hump day, so. You really do. (laughs) You're like, I'm not engaging. To a weird degree. (laughs) I am not engaging that again. Well, uh, one of the things we like to do here is to just take stories that we find on the Internet, stories that we find in the news, uh, and try to go, uh, you know, what do we think about them? But also, what do we think about this in light of uh, what it means to follow Jesus? What, how does this affect the church? These types of questions. So a strange story uh, from the world of NFL football. You and I, you a Lions fan, me a Giants fan, we've both, both probably checked out of the NFL season mm-hmm. so far. Used to that. <laughs> You're like, what is this? This NFL thing goes past Thanksgiving? Yeah, what right. are you speaking of? <laughs> I can barely make it to Thanksgiving. <laughs> and uh, there's an article that entitled this, Michael Vick will be honored at Pro Bowl amid pushback, Commissioner Roger Goodell says. So uh, you remember the, Roger, the Michael Vick story? I, yes, I do. For those of you who don't remember Michael Vick, uh, it says here, arguably one of the most talented former NFL players, uh, Vic arrived to Philadelphia on a second chance in two th- after pleading guilty in 2017 for a role in a dogfighting ring, and he served nearly two years in prison. Uh, and so you probably remember that this was a story that was all over the news, and uh, rightfully so, uh, people were uh, just appalled by it, right? It was a, uh, it was a dogfighting ring, and it was just... It was a hard story. Michael Vick went to prison. Uh, he paid his restitution. He came back to the NFL, had a good rest of his career. Uh, and now he is set to be an honorary captain during the Pro Bowl in January of 2020. But there's a change.org petition calling on the NFL to revoke the honor that has been signed by over 550,000 people. And there's other petitions that have uh, come online since the news surfaced. Uh, the petition cites the cruel and inhumane killing of dogs that led to Vic's conviction. Uh, but here's what Goodell said, and then I'd love your your uh, reaction to this. Goodell said, uh, over the last nine years or so, we have supported Michael in his, what I think his recognition of the mistake he made. He paid a heavy price for that. He's been accountable for it. He's worked aggressively with the Humane Society and other institutions to deal with animal rights and to make sure people don't make the same mistake he made. And I admire that. 
Goodell went on to say that some people will never forgive him. He said, I know that there are people out there that will never forgive him. He knows that. But I think this is a young man that has really taken his life in a positive direction. And we support that. So I don't anticipate any change. That's his way of saying he will still be one of the honorary captains hmm. at the Pro Bowl. So a kind of a, a an interesting story because you can almost you can see the logic from both sides. But I'm curious yeah. what you think about this story. You know, it's interesting. Um I've mentioned before on the show that the week I spent homeless in Philly, right? Yeah. And that was right around the time all of this was swirling around. So it was very interesting to get like a front row seat just in conversation with people in Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking about all this this last week and, I, you know, both of our social media feeds, I'm sure, were kind of blowing up. And legitimately having a hard time deciphering how I felt about it. Yeah. I have uh, very, very vocal friends on both sides of this. Do you really? Saying thing on one end, like, there's so many other people, kind-hearted people we could be honoring. Why would we honor this evil-hearted man? Mm-hmm. But then other people saying, if we weren't going to give him an opportunity for restitution in the first place, why punish him? Like, what mm-hmm. what is the point of of prison time or suspensions or charges or, you know, so it, it, I think it honestly gets down to some kind of distant assessment of the condition of a human heart, which, of course, you and I both know is yep. uh, ultimately impossible to do. <laughs> but what's not impossible is to determine and decipher and discern who or who we should or shouldn't be honoring. Mm-hmm. I think some people – I saw someone a couple of days ago say, yeah, yeah, we believe in the restitution. I actually believe that he's he's been reformed, but I I still feel no need, though – to platform him any further. Interesting. I believe that he served his time. I believe that he's um, he's earned the right to live a normal life. But that, what we're talking about isn't normal. We're talking about elevating him yeah. above other players, other humanitarians, other whatever. Uh, and that, I think, is where a lot of people have the issue. That's why I think this is different. It feels a lot like, you know, I've talked about my uh, my previous church and the lead pastor was, was removed for all sorts of issues. And the big outcry was, well, what about grace what about forgiveness mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and our elders had to say repeatedly he's been forgiven but he's disqualified himself from leadership of this church yeah. so like it's not about grace or forgiveness it's about do we reinstate someone like this and i think it's obviously two very different stories sure sure, know, sure but it's it feels like a similar train of thought and I, i'd be curious to know where where you land in all of it you know when i first heard this story my my it was interesting because my initial reaction was Gosh, he, he went to prison for two years, right? which is what a lot of people I was reading, they say that's actually much more than most people in this situation go to prison really? for. Uh, he was out of the NFL for a while. He worked his way back. He's working with the Humane Society. So I was like, man, th- like this is a success story. He's back on TV like in some pregame show, I think, on Fox or something. Hmm. Um, but you make a great point about the difference between forgiveness and and elevating. Right, and, right. And uh, we do have this uh, – we get that really wrong in our culture. This is a little bit apples to oranges, but I think of like the most um, public uh, steroid user, one of the most public steroid user, PED users in Major League Baseball history, right, is Alex Rodriguez. Uh-huh. And everyone was like, he was like getting kicked out of the game practically, not right. in the Hall of Fame. And now he is like the lead guy on Fox's uh, pregame show, and right. he's the head ESPN announcer. And right. you're like, right. that right. feels <laughs> weird. So I do get that what you're saying, um, because my first thing was, man, he's been he's doing the work. He like forgive him, but there is something to be said about uh, when to when is it um, unwise to put somebody back in a spotlight, right? Uh, and what. And what does 
uh, that do. Do you have any? I don't. I don't know this. Do we have any recorded documentation of him like really truly being contrite? Like, is this another one of those cases where like I'm sorry I got caught? Um, or yeah, his not. interviews seem genuinely contrite. He yeah. genuinely seems like a changed person. Okay. Obviously, you can fake your way through media interviews. Sure, and that's not for us to determine. Correct. I don't think. But but uh, he, the genuineness of his contrition seems legitimate, and okay. everyone around him seems to say that it's legitimate. That this was a dark season of his life, and uh, he's learned his uh, lesson. I wonder what do you think the NFL is trying to accomplish by saying. We want to elevate him back in because they've got to be having these conversations around a board table, about around a boardroom. Going, yeah, oh, who we're going to have? I wonder what their move here was. You know, I think we sometimes assume that um, controversy can't be monetized, and I think it absolutely can. Oh, I, the very fact that we're talking about it now, like that's you and I, probably are inclined, especially in church work, we're thinking, why would you willingly well, step into this firestorm yeah. NFL? You could have just picked a much safer option, or whatever. But the very fact that you and I and thousands of other people are talking about it. I have to believe that that somehow is good for ratings. Because nobody for... else watches the Pro Bowl. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Honestly, you know, I I realize neither of us really came to a conclusion at all in this segment, but it it is a, a tricky one, and I think it's there's a deeper theological and philosophical yeah. question at hand about how he determines whether or not someone's actually turned their life around or what they're worthy of once yeah. they've paid their dues, quote unquote. Yeah. Like, I think those are all tough but important questions, and it reveals a little bit about our human heart yeah. when uh, when we respond to how this plays out in someone else's life. Yeah, I think you raised also for the church world a very interesting point about you can someone who publicly uh, stumbles, you can forgive them without elevating them again. Absolutely. And I think that's something that we often lose here in churches. So we would love uh, your response. You can do so at Facebook at the Common Good uh, Radio Show. Coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about uh, an article out of the Dallas News about uh, – smartphones and the sixth graders and kind of the danger around that. How do we help navigate that? That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Go ahead and find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can find us on Twitter at Common Good Talk, uh, online at 1160hope.com, and go ahead and find uh, our podcast, wherever it is you get your podcasts. Thanks in advance for all of you who subscribe, rate, review, and uh, we're glad that you do that. So uh, it felt like yesterday's show and the show before feels like one of the topics we keep tackling is uh, what is the appropriate level of access for our children to have with their phones, on the internet, uh, kind of this changing landscape that uh, from when you and I were younger versus what our what our kids uh, are going to be raised in. And uh, a fascinating opinion article, a commentary out of the Dallas News, uh, uh, has some shock value to it. It says this, when sixth graders can access rape porn on their smartphones, school becomes toxic. Gosh. Subtitle says, no 11-year-old should have to deal with or even know about things like this. And so let me read this to you. On a recent Sunday afternoon, my daughter, this is the author writing, and I were driving to the grocery store when she said from the back seat, I'm having this weird feeling. It feels like I feel I, it's like I feel guilty, but I haven't done anything wrong. We we're passing a Catholic church when we said this. So I jokingly told her, <coughs> excuse me, I could drop her off for confession. She reminded me we're not Catholic. Uh, and then I told then I told her how her sister used to write me notes when she had something weighing on her. 
I'd find them under my pillow, and that's how we'd communicate. Since my younger daughter is only 11, I didn't expect the weight of the letters she brought me that night around 11 p.m. Hmm. In glittery red ink, the same she used for her Christmas list, her words sank my heart. At a friend's birthday party they were playing on the little girl's phone, the girl handed it to my daughter and said, Boys are disgusting. The daughter clicked on a male classmate's Snapchat story to find a video of him and a few other boys from her class. That would be, what, fifth grade? Yeah. Uh, from her class laughing as they watched rape porn. Uh, her letter went on to describe a group of boys in her sixth grade class frequently joking about assaulting girls in the parking lot. They are in the sixth grade, she writes. No 11-year-old should have to deal with or even know about things like this. I contacted the teacher. Now the boys and girls sit at separate tables at lunch. That hardly addresses the problem. Right. She said, our children are growing up in a very different world than the one we knew. Gone are the days of your grandfather's playboy. Today, children have ex- access to explicit, violent, and degrading sexual material in the palm of their hands at all time. This is where many kids get their sex education. This is where they're learning uh, about it. Her letter ended with the most heartbreaking line, her mom writes, and this is why I hate school. Schools today not only tolerate phones in the classroom, she writes, many encourage them. I know this because I won't let my children have smartphones, and they complain that their teachers frequently ask them to download apps to complete their schoolwork. Technology is our future, but so are these fragile minds. Mm. Children today, whether we realize it or not, are part of a giant experiment. We've got to do more to prepare them and protect them. I'd argue it's time to rethink how much online access we're giving them. It's not a matter of not trusting our children, but rather not setting them up for failure when their developing brains aren't ready for the level of content they can see both on and off school property. She ends this way. I'm so glad my daughter trusted me enough to share her burdened heart, but now it's time for us as parents and as educators to remove these technology burdens. Gosh. And so in some more graphic uh language it's a lot like the article we did yesterday that mm-hmm. kind of said maybe we should ban phones until kids are 18 and mm-hmm. we kind of decided that was a little tongue-in-cheek um what do you do with this story what, what does it do to you as a dad with growing kids just someone who looks at our culture what, what are your thoughts on this yeah it, it's to say that it's heartbreaking would be a massive understatement i'm trying right. to even imagine you know the way that she describes even the the ink that her daughter used to to write this down, like having to reconcile, like this is my little girl. I, you know, we've talked about technology a good deal, but I don't know that we've necessarily talked about the unbelievable aggression of some of the content they're exposed to. And I think I'm probably a little naive. My kids are pretty little, really. Yeah, a lot naive. I, I know that this stuff is out there. It does, I guess, shock me that like 11-year-old boys would already know of it and have access Mm -hmm. to it Mm -hmm. to the point where – and that's the other thing you know, with Snapchat and TikTok. What someone else is experiencing now is what you're experiencing if you're Mm -hmm. friends or if you're following. You know, We know this sort of with regards to Facebook, but I think it's a whole different level, particularly when your social circle is so important to these developing minds. It it raises all sorts of other questions about the types of content that's – it's out there regardless. You know, there's no way for you and I to, you know, launch a change.org right. petition to scrub <laughs> the internet yeah. of these awful, horrific yeah. things. But like we said yesterday, we also, the answer for most of us probably can't be just pack everything up, and move to the mountains and live off the grid, right? Mm-hmm. That's probably not helpful either. But how do you actually guard against something so pervasive, so accessible 
when you know it references Grandpa's Playboy, where then all the movies depict like, oh, they found it under their mattress, yeah. and then they had a conversation, and then they grounded the kid, and then you know they went on their merry way. Like this is so everywhere, yeah. and that's part of what makes it so daunting. Um, you have boys and girls. I yep. imagine maybe this hits you a little differently because my mind immediately goes to. Gosh, I need to start instilling in them right right away like what it means to be a, a man of honor, yes, of in, in integrity, and to hopefully have the kind of relationship where my kid, while we're driving, could say something like, "I feel this weird feeling." Yep. Like I, that was the part that stood out to me. Mm-hmm. Like this, the kid having the willingness to speak up in the first place is such a gift, but also still heartbreaking. I think that touches on a huge part here, and I'm glad you brought it up. I think. One of the first answers, one of the most important answers to this is to doing all you can, and you, some of it's out of your control, but to be doing all you can to foster from a really young age, like the age your kids are, yeah. uh, to be fostering this trust and this relationship with your kids uh, to which these conversations can happen. Because right. you'd like to think you're always going to know, but you're no, not. No, no way. Right? How do you how do you monitor Snapchat all the time, and how do you monitor TikTok, like you said? And yeah, you can keep it off their foot. Like if they want to get around you, they're going to get around you the same way we did as kids, just in different ways, right? right? Uh, so it is this openness of relationship between parent and child. Um, but I do think, and and this is me challenging myself. I'm not mm. sure I'm great at this. Is having the hard conversations with your kids, like about these types of things, like hey. Are you seeing anything online that mom and dad don't know about that mm. makes you feel like, you know, I don't know that this is right? Are there ever anyone trying to contact you? Are there any? Do you like, have confidence that your kids would answer? What? Honestly, like if you were out of the blue, like, hey, are you seeing stuff you shouldn't be seeing? Would they be like, no, of course not. What? Uh, that catch them off guard, you think? It would catch them off guard. Yeah. But if it was more in the context of like, hey, we want to talk about, you know, techno- whatever, technology yeah. or Snapchat. Uh you know, some of you are going to shake your head and tell me I'm naive. I'm confident my kids aren't doing anything because I look at their phones all the time yeah. and this and that. I could be <laughs> – some people out there would be laughing like, oh, yeah. And so I, I think it would be more along the lines of like, has anyone ever sent you anything? Like mm-hmm. anything ever popped up? Like what are you knowing? Right. Um, but I do think having that open dialogue uh, and having standards, man, in your family. Like part of her thing here is that the school has a different standard than her family. And not letting the school or what your neighbors are doing or their friends are doing be what guides your family, I think, is also really important, but a hard thing. Yeah, and I think, gosh, we do need to partner with schools. Absolutely. I love our school. Yeah, and you've talked very, very highly of your school, and I know that's not the case for everyone. And I totally understand. I think I mentioned this yesterday. The older I get, the more I think I understand why our parents homeschooled us. Mm -hmm. They were hearing some of these, I mean, obviously different, but similar types of fears. And they're like, nope, we're not, you're, we're not exposing you to that. Now we've, you know, again, found workarounds, you yeah. know, to <laughs> yeah. still get in trouble and still yeah. make dumb decisions. And uh, I'm not, I'm not proud of that, but uh, yeah, partnering with the schools and having the hard conversations. And I, I appreciate you owning even just the difficulty of, if this isn't a part of your, you know, regular rhythm already, start, yeah. you know, start somewhere yes. having hard conversations. Don't wait until it's, they've already hit some sort of traumatic wall right. and now now you're you know running triage like that that's a hard thing to initiate but i think a really important one so we'd love to hear more from you go to our facebook page at the common good radio show that's the common good radio show coming up next an article off desiringgod.org uh, about what grieving people wish you knew at christmas that's mm-hmm. what we're going to talk about next here on the common good am 1160 hope for your life 
Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Well, alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us uh, today. Before we hop into the article that we just referenced from Desiring God, uh, let me talk to you about one of our partners here at AM 1160. That is Food for the Poor. Uh, Food for the Poor does awesome, unbelievable work, uh, particularly around the humanitarian crisis currently going on in the nation of Haiti. If you haven't heard anything about it, uh, and that's sadly true for a lot of us, we don't know what's going on down there. Uh, in Haiti, the the crisis around food and clean water uh, and even just basic necessities like that and electricity uh, is at a crisis level. And so what Food for the Poor does uh, is through the donations and partnerships of other people and organizations, they are able to go into Haiti and provide food for a year and water for life uh, for families in need. And so here's what you can do. For $27 a month, that's $320 a year. Uh, you could provide food for a year and water for life for an entire family of four. Uh, and so any variation of that, right? $54 a month and you could take care of two families. But if all you have is $80 for the year, you want to give a one-time $80 gift, that is going to provide food for a year and water for life for one child for the entire year. So you can call 855-901-4673. That's 855-901-4673. Uh, or go to 1160hope.com. Uh, click on the banner, and there you can make your contribution. And there's one more thing. You could become an AM 1160 business benefactor alongside Food for the Poor. And the way that works is for a one-time $1,000 gift that goes all to this, all to Food for the Poor, you will receive 41-minute commercials that will air right here on AM 1160 between 5 a.m. and 8 p.m., Monday through Friday. You can promote whatever you want to promote. Well, probably not whatever you want to promote, but you can promote uh, your business, your church, your school, your ministry. You could give it to your church or to your school. And so to learn more about a business, being a business benefactor, a complete win-win here, uh, call Jeff Reisman at 847 472 Eight nine two one. We can do this. Let's get it across the finish line. Get all the families taken care of. Uh, that's food for the poor. Eight five five nine zero one four six seven three or eleven sixty hope dot com. All right. DesiringGod.org. dot uh, org. At this Christmas time of season, Nancy, Nancy Guthrie wrote a great article called "What Grieving People Wish You Knew at Christmas." And these are, you know, it's a hard thing to think about because we all want Christmas just to be happy and joyful. But it's a realization that there are people out there for which for whom this time is not joyful. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on here? Yeah, that's exactly her whole point is how much we desire uh, in general for it to be cheery and uplifting. It's this, you know, literally we have songs about it being the most wonderful time of the year. Truth. So she wrote this. It's, uh, it's a few years old, but I, I think it's still super appropriate. She begins by saying, Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. As the end of the year approaches, everywhere we turn, someone is telling us we should be happy. But for those of us who have recently lost someone they love, the holidays can seem more like something to survive than to enjoy. The traditions and events that can add so much joy and meaning to the season are punctuated with the painful reminder of the person we love who is not here to share in it. Many have wished they could find a quiet place to hide until January 2nd. Mm. While those of us who surround grieving people can't fix the pain of loss, we can bring comfort as we come alongside those who hurt with special sensitivity to what grief is like during the holidays. Grieving people wish we all knew at least five truths among others at Christmas. So she gives a list of five. Mm-hmm. If you're listening, if you have any sense at all that maybe someone in your life is in this place, uh, I highly recommend you write down these five mm-hmm. or go to the Facebook page and read over this article because I, I think the five are great. So why don't you kick us off with number one? Yep, number one, even the best times are punctuated with an awareness that someone is missing. 
She writes, I remember a conversation I had with a friend as we prepared to head out on a holiday trip shortly after our daughter, Hope, died. That should be fun, she said. I sensed I was supposed to agree with her. What I didn't know how to explain is that when you've lost a member of your family, even the best of times are painfully incomplete. Someone's missing. Even the best days and happiest events are tinged with sadness. Mm. Wherever you go, the sadness goes with you. Oh, boy. Okay, so number one, even the best times are punctuated with an awareness that someone is missing. Number two, social situations are hard. She writes, I have never been able to figure out why crowds are difficult when you're grieving, but they are. Small talk can be unbearable when something so significant has happened. Meeting new people will likely bring questions about family. To walk alone into a room full of couples when your spouse has died or into an event filled with kids when your kid has died can be soul-crushing, a soul-crushing reminder of what you've lost. If uh, If you've invited someone in the midst of grief to your holiday event, let them know that you understand it uh, and understand if it seems too hard at the last minute and they have to cancel or that they may only be able to stay for a short time. If you're going to an event, give a grieving person a call and ask if you can pick her up and stick with her throughout the event for support. When you come upon a grieving person at a holiday social event, let him know that you are still thinking about the mm-hmm. person he loves who has died and invite him to talk about his memories with that, of that person. Uh, don't be afraid to say the name of the person who has died. It will be a balm to the grieving person's soul. Number three, Extended family can be awkward and uneasy. Mm. Grief is often awkward, even and perhaps especially with those whom we're the closest. Mm. My husband and I, this is the author here, host weekend retreats for couples that have lost children. And the difficulty of being with family at the holidays is often a topic of conversation among those couples. They know that some family members think they've grieved long enough and want them to move on. Others want to initiate a conversation about the person who died but aren't sure how. Mm. What often happens is the name of the person who died is never mentioned, and it feels to the person who is grieving that they've been erased from the family. Oh, wow. Do you know a grieving person heading to a family gathering for the holidays? You might ask about their expectations when they're with family. And if they have a strong desire for their loved one to be remembered in a certain way, combined with a fear that it may not happen, you might encourage them and help them to write a letter to their family in advance, stating clearly that they would like to bring comfort rather than expect uh, what would bring comfort rather than expect that their family will instinctively know. Yeah. That's really good. Number four, tears are not a problem. I hear this one a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. For most of us, grief tends to work itself out in tears, tears that come out at times we don't expect. Sometimes grieving people sense that people around them see their tears as a problem to be solved, that tears must mean they aren't doing very well with their grief, but it makes sense that the great sorrow of losing someone we love would come out in tears. Tears are not the enemy. Tears do not reflect a lack of faith. Tears are a gift from God that help to wash away the deep pain of loss. It is a great gift to let grieving people know that they don't have to be embarrassed by their tears uh, around you, that they are welcome to cry with you. An even greater gift is to shed tears of your own over the loss of the person they love. Your tears reflect the worth of the person who died and assure them that they're not alone in missing that person. This is one that I, on Sundays, a lot of times people will come up afterwards and say, I'm so I'm so sorry for crying. Is that right? Yeah. And mm. it's like, you do not have to apologize yeah. for that at all. But that, that makes sense that you would feel this odd guilt because you feel like you're making someone else feel awkward. Absolutely. Last one. It can be hard to remember why Christmas uh, should be merry. Mm. In O Holy Night, we sing a thrill of hope the weary world rejoices. Grieving people around you feel the weariness of life and death in this world and wonder how anyone around them can rejoice. They're in desperate need of the reality of Christ to break through their loneliness and despair. While we don't want to preach at them, we do look for the opportunity to share with them the comfort and joy to be found in the coming of God himself in Christ to rescue us. Hmm. The life of Jesus that began in a wooden cradle will culminate in death on a wooden cross, but it will not be a senseless, meaningless death. Hmm. It will be a death, conquering death, followed by new resurrection life. The writer of Hebrews, she says, explains, 
Uh, the son became flesh and blood for only as a human being could he die and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. The power of death has now to, has now to bring so much sorrow will not be that way. It, it will not be that way forever. What Christ set in motion when he defeated death at his first coming will come to its full fruition when he comes again. That's really good news. And hopefully these are helpful as we interact with the grieving people close to us this Christmas. You know, and we talked about uh, hope on Sunday at Community Christian. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we did at the Yellow Box was um, in between the message, we shared that part one of the story I'd mentioned yeah. of this couple that was in the midst of uh, just really heartbreaking grief. And then we sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, but we didn't do the rejoice part of it. And you could just tell everyone wanted to sing the Rejoice. It's like such a good, recognizable song. And we just sang the verses, which are hard. And then I came back and I was like, sometimes Rejoice is the furthest word from our minds. You could like feel in the room, like, oh, I want to rejoice. But knowing full well that there are people, even in our room, in our churches, that are like, I can't rejoice yet. I think this is a really helpful article. Yeah, absolutely. So you can find that on our Facebook page. Uh, Hopefully that's a helpful tool for those of you who are – interacting with people and grieving, but also those of you who are in the midst of grief. Hopefully this helps you, you know, feel heard. Uh, So you can find that at our Facebook page. Coming up next, we're going to look at a blog from uh, one of our favorite pastors that we've never met before. (laughs) Scott (laughs) Sauls. We're going to talk about a blog he wrote about Christmas. Coming up next on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Happy Wednesday. We're glad that you are joining us today. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. Uh, We hope that you are having a great week, but also as we get near and near to Christmas. Curious, all your Christmas shopping done yet? (laughs) I will take that as a no. Not even close. Really? No, not even close. How many of you? You seem surprised. Well, here's, here's the big question. In your family, now that you have little kids, yeah. do you buy for your boys or or does your wife buy all the gifts and uh, you guys talk about that? How is gift buying in the Simpkins house? We or is that still being figured out? Still being figured out. We Yeah, we're not. I remember about mid-November thinking, okay, this year I'm going to be on top of it. And <laughs> here we are. Uh, yeah, truth be told, my wife is just a better – she's better – She's a better gift giver in general. But yep. we'll like talk about it. We, you know, like we're both thinking, hey, long winter, what if we got like a little kid trampoline so we can burn mm. some energy? So we're thinking more yep. <laughs> strategically, I guess, about like what would be a good thing for us to together get for them. Trampoline. <laughs> boom, 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 the That's honestly, time. I was looking at kid ones. I was like, why don't I just get Those an adult kid ones one? Are cool. Yeah, man, oh man, he can use an adult one. I would suspect that when this whole Christmas season is over, man, I'm I'm probably being too way uh way too open right here. I suspect the only gift I will have purchased in the Christmas season is for my wife. Oh, where I actually physically purchase it. I don't think that's uncommon. I don't think it is either. It's probably, probably a little unfair. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to uncommon. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I don't it's it's the rhythm we've gotten into. Really? So, yeah. Yeah, I can understand that. I tried proposing to like my family back in Detroit that we, you know, spend less on gifts and put it towards like an experience. Yep. But then of course that like spins out into well, what kind of experience? What day are we thinking? Who's going to watch the kid? Who's, you know, like, yeah. like, gosh, it's just easier. <laughs> I would also say that you bring that up. I'm 
99.99% sure my kids are not listening to the show right now. Uh, Whatever. They, they are. We are doing a family experience that I oh, purchased. So nice. I way to do experiences pretty well. Way I to go. Really well. well, you're a pastor. I receive you... gifts well. <laughs> That's a real gift, Brian. Thank you, have, you very uh, much. You have a real skill. You, are you, do you have the gift of gift giving? No, I have the gift of gift receiving. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I made mention, too, on Sunday about gifts I didn't get as a kid. Yes. And someone afterwards was like, you know you're going to get like five Game Boys now, right? I was like, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, that'd be fun. Five Game Boys. <laughs> it was the, you should have been like, oh, I strategically placed no, those in there. I'm, I feel uh, ashamed I didn't think about that in advance, actually. <laughs> you're like, whatever it is you want right now. You're like, you know what? I never I never re- received yeah. an iPhone 11 as right. a kid. And people are like, I don't think this existed. <laughs> yeah. You know the, the gift that got away? Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> never did I, get it. I always see them on commercials now. I see this. Right. And that. I'm looking at you. Oh, anyway. Scott Sauls, he's... Somebody asked me the other day who listens to our show. They were like, why have you never had him on? I'm like, I don't know. We need to. <laughs> you are There's no pastor angry. we've quoted more times uh, because we are both, I would tell, I'll speak for myself, but I think you are too, uh, really find him. I find him to be, uh, to have a, both a, not just a theology, but like a, a practice and a way he looks at culture in the world uh, and the church that I really resonate with. Uh, and so you can find him at scottsauls.com. That's S-A-U-L-S. Uh, and he regularly blogs on there. And that's the one I want to talk about. He wrote a blog on December the 6th called Christmas, uh, the fairy tale that must be true. Let me read you the first paragraph. Have you ever stopped just for a second and considered the far-fetched claims of Christianity at Christmas time? During this particular holiday, Christians all over the world, millions and millions of them, Pause to contemplate a first century Middle Eastern infant mothered by a teenage girl who had never been with a man, born dirt poor and from a small, obscure hick town called Nazareth. This little boy, this underdog whose life was allegedly surrounded by miracles such as a virgin birth, unexplainable healings and resurrection. Christians say he is the answer to all the world's problems. The hope of the universe rests on the belief that this seemingly far-fetched fairy tale is actually true. Come on, really? Yes, really. And then he says, Jesus, that little boy from the obscure hick town and virgin womb, he would grow up and speak these words about himself for anyone who would listen. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I love how he frames this as like an unbelievable fairy tale uh, that is true. does that kind of encapsulate Christmas for you? That kind of as as you think and talk to people in your church or preach about Christmas? Uh, I think it's a, an interesting take. You know, he references some books. Did you have you ever read Keller's The Reason for God? I have. Yeah, uh, that that's a really great book. He also referenced uh, Who Moved the Stone by uh, Frank Morrison, and there's Case for Christ and More Than a Carpenter. These are kinds of things like. <laughs> I mean, we burn most of our time for this segment talking about Christmas, but like those are things that I would encourage people, especially yeah. if you're either a skeptic yourself or you're close to someone who is. Like those are, I think, really good resources. And Christmas time, strangely, people tend to be really open Correct. to these conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe I am taking this too evangelistically, but like, you know, a nine minute segment isn't probably going to convince someone who's yeah. like fully steeped in skepticism. But there are books and resources, and I think part of what He's talking about it here. He references a good deal, Simon Greenleaf, mm-hmm. who has kind of come to the conclusion that they're, you know, he's, so he's this, he's a law professor at, at Harvard. And he's like, the evidence is overwhelming of the resurrection. Now we can debate yeah, yeah. various points of doctrine within the scriptures, but the evidence of the resurrection is 
enormous. And mm. he kind of goes on to explain why, which I don't know about you, man. When I read really, really smart people that come to similar conclusions, I'm always like, okay, phew. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember like the first time I saw Francis S. Collins speak, he was the head of the Human yes. Genome Project. That guy's amazing. And you're like, you're also a Christian? Yes. yes. Like, it feels Our so. Our team. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Because, yeah. you know, most of the time I feel like when someone brings something up that's really obscure or really yeah. highbrow, I'm like, I don't. I don't know how to answer that. So Absolutely. It's a helpful article written from a pastor who thinks pastorally, but also someone who I think thinks very critically. And I'm sure he's, I'm sure Scott, like you, have been you know faced with some of these questions before. I think it's an interesting, I don't read a lot of articles like this during Christmas time, which mm-hmm. is part of what I appreciate about it. Yeah. I like what he said. You brought up Greenleaf. He says, uh, Saul's writes, if you're not open to, if you are not ready to open yourself to the possibility that Jesus is the truth, would you consider embarking on the journey that Simon Greenleaf once did? Would you accept the challenge, as he did, of attempting to prove that it is false? Hmm. And then he says, perhaps in your quest to prove Christianity to be false, you might discover, as Greenleaf and Francis Schaeffer did, that there is only one reason to be a Christian, because it's true. And, uh, yeah, I would really encourage you to dig into this blog, because as Ian just hinted at, he uh, or talked about, Saul's really kind of lays out... Um, in really powerful ways, uh, why this seeming fairy tale, right? The story of Jesus would make a great movie in some senses, uh, like a, just a story, but in reality as to why it's true. And I love that you said it all hinges uh, ultimately on the resurrection. That's why Paul said without the resurrection, we're fools. <laughs> like yeah, this right. is all just foolishness. Right. Uh, but with the resurrection, there's power. Uh, and and yeah, I love Keller's uh, chapter on the resurrection and reason for God because really you leave good. it going, oh yeah, no, no, this is actually more likely true than not, even right. if you're a skeptic. And I really appreciate that. Well, and this is this is how he ends it. He says, uh, if you're not ready to open yourself to the possibility that Jesus is the truth, would you consider embarking on the journey that Simon Greenleaf once did? Would you accept the challenges he did of attempting to prove it is false, like you said? And then he ends by saying, perhaps in your quest to prove Christianity to be false, you might discover as Greenleaf and Schaefer did, that the only reason uh, to be a Christian is because it's true. I'm curious, so you quoted all of that. Do you find that invitation to be uh, inviting enough to someone who's reading, who made it to the end of this article, Mm -hmm. and is like, oh, well, he said it's true, so I guess I need to. Like, what do you think is the major hurdle for a true skeptic? I think it depends what makes you skeptical. I think... Uh, if you're the type who's probably like a Simon Greenleaf who's like, you know, I'm empirical, I, I, I look at evidence, I'm more of a feeler. So for uh, me, it okay. has more to do with feeling. So okay. I'm not sure if I were a skeptic, I'd get to the end of this. I'd be like, man, that just sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> but uh, but That's kind of what I mean, though. Like, why would – if someone's, like, kind of rooted in their skepticism, like, I'm not going to take on more work to – probably come to the same conclusion that I already have. I would think some of these people, they'd take it as a challenge and they would go, okay, let's yeah. try it okay. and and – with all truth being God's truth, I think what Saul's is saying is hopefully at the end you come out going, wow, maybe this is true. So yeah. we'd love for you to read this. Scott Saul's Christmas, The Fairy Tale That Must Be True. Uh, really well-written blog post. You can find it at our Facebook page, The Common Good uh, Radio Show. We're glad you're joining us today on this Wednesday evening. Uh, for Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hey everyone, it's Ian Simpkins here. And after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of piqued with regards to what kind of organization this was. And it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter at Common Good Talk. You can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, review. Uh, you can also find uh, old shows online at 1160hope.com. Really what we're saying is uh, you can just find us anywhere. We're just all over the place. You can go listen to Ian preach at the Yellow Box in Naperville and just go up and shake his hand afterward and say, <laughs> great job on that show. <laughs> Well, don't lie to me. Yeah. <laughs> subpar, subpar job with that Hey, show. I heard your show. Yeah. We were talking, uh, this came up just yesterday. Someone was like, man, really liked your guys' podcast. I was like, did you know it's a radio show? And they're like, huh? I'm like, that's actually what it is first. <laughs> Holy cow, I did not know. I was like, do we not say this enough? Is this not? <laughs> if you're listening to the podcast right now, turn on your radio, 1160 AM. Yes. Or not. We just like that you listen anyway you do. But that's funny. <laughs> that is really funny. So uh, a article on Daily Mail, but this was kind of off a Today Show interview that was really interesting. There was a Today Show interview with the former First Lady Michelle Obama with uh, Jenna Bush Hager, who is the daughter of George W. Bush, former President George W. Bush. And so speaking on the Today Show, uh, I believe it was uh, not this past Tuesday, but the Tuesday before uh, the former first lady uh, said that while she and Bush may disagree on matters of politics, they actually have plenty in common, uh, something that's true of most people, she believes. She says our values mm. are the same. We disagree on policy, but we don't disagree on humanity. Mm. We don't disagree about love and compassion. I think that's true for all of us. It's just that we get lost in our fear of what's uh, different. And this article is the best because it shows all these <laughs> pictures of Michelle Obama and George Bush like – Hugging, uh, sharing a handshake. Uh, when that famous one, that famous sharing one, a handshake. Yeah, you know that famous <laughs> one where she gives him a mint at uh, was it one of the funerals? I forget. Oh, at her dad's at uh, George H. W. Bush's yeah. funeral, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, it's become this thing. And and here's what I, I would start this question for you is: uh, I know the answer is we're never surprised, but are is it 
is it at all surprising that people really give them both a hard time for seeming to have a good relationship with one another? You know, Brian, when I'm sharing a handshake and thinking about this. <laughs> uh, sharing a mint. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just going to – that's going to come up at least two more times. Sharing a handshake. <laughs> Like I'm a, looking at a picture of them right now, <laughs> like sharing a, a handshake. Like it was a milkshake with two straws or something. Um, yeah, I don't know why it continues to surprise me. It's a lot like uh, who did who did Ellen recently talk about disagreeing with but still finding oh, to be a lovely person? Shoot, I'm going to forget that because we did that story. We too. totally did. I thought for sure you'd remember this. I Someone listening is like screaming at the radio like, it's this guy. Either way, she caught a lot of backlash. I think it was about George Bush also. It also might have been. It was because they were at that football game together. They were sitting in a box laughing and people were like, you can't laugh with him. Uh, You can't laugh at him. And the reasons were because he stood for this or he implemented this or he helped you know pass this bill or whatever. And people um, might legitimately have some real... Yeah. points there uh i like the soundbite though of what you said she's like oh we might disagree on policy but we don't disagree on humanity and like no. that to me um sounds very reminiscent of my good friend john armstrong who when we've had these ecumenical gatherings of protestant and catholics together uh, i remember the first time i went uh, some priest i think he was from honduras he said where we can't have doctrinal ecumenism we can't have relational ecumenism mm. as if to say um, we're going to always probably disagree on the Eucharist. Yes. We're going to probably disagree on apostolic succession. These are things that I don't even know that the goal is for us to necessarily agree on, but we can work towards relational unity even mm-hmm. in the midst of disagreements. And I think that was so inspiring for me because it was just a room full of really, really smart people who like came to their conclusions and their convictions after a lot of thought and study. Yeah. It wasn't just this flippant, like, well, I feel this about ecclesiology. Point. It was like, no, 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 no. I've read more books than you can imagine, and we disagree. Uh, but we can share a meal and actually have true intimacy. So yeah. I think, for me, part of what I find so frustrating is um, how polarizing stories like this can be. Yeah. But to be honest, uh, most of the people I saw sharing it were like, yeah, we need more of this in the world. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. the majority of what I saw, at least. Me too, but even that's interesting because people are needing to make that comment because it, they're saying it's not common, right? Like, it's, Yeah, right. It's it's just an odd deal that that we are so politicized and so polarized that we just want to say you've got to only uh, not only do you have to just agree with your tribe, but you can only uh, relate. You can only uh, interact with your tribe. Right. And uh, yeah, you know, any association otherwise is uh, unforgivable. And I think for me in the friendship in these pictures of George W. Bush and Michelle Obama, it's everything that's right about our country. Yeah, it's. Uh, it's a 20-year gap in age. It's a older white man and an African-American woman. It's a Republican and a Democrat. It's it's everything that in our culture divides, and you see them laughing together. Uh, she says this. I love this quote. She says, uh, President Bush and I, we are forever seatmates because of protocol, and that's how we sit at all the official functions. And then she said, he's my partner in crime at every major thing where all the, quote, formers gather. So we're together all the time. And uh, I just – I love this. And I guess I would be really curious if there's people who don't love this. I would love to know what's the reasoning. Hmm. Uh, But to spin it towards the church, man, to spin it towards what you were bringing up there – 
what opportunity do you see for us as Christians to live this out in a culture that doesn't necessarily live this out in other areas? What is that opportunity for us that we might be missing? Well, you kind of alluded to it. The fact that uh, this is sort of a seating arrangement, you yeah. know, I'm not saying that they wouldn't be friends otherwise, but because of protocol, mm-hmm. they just happen to end up next to each other. You and I were both youth pastors. We've yep. been in schools. Like it's part of why I think youth pastors and teachers will intentionally shuffle seats around. So you have to interact yeah, with somebody yeah. else. Um, the problem is most of us aren't in any kind of system like these two, where they're forced to spend a significant amount of time with someone that they maybe disagree with yeah. on a lot of things. And I think that's part of the shame and also part of the struggle is because everything in our lives as adults points towards echo chambers, confirmation bias, a, a sort of yes. digital, political, theological tribalism. That's easiest. It is. I mean, we can all admit that it's easier to just simply spend time with people who look and talk and act Ooh. and think and vote and believe like you do. That yes. is the default going along with the stream of whatever and to actively go against that in any way yeah. uh, does require effort. So how do you carve out time with people point. way outside your sphere when you have so much to do even within your sphere? Most Ooh. of us are tired and overwhelmed and you know we're pastors who so are thinking a lot of times about the people at our church. Yeah. And, uh, regardless of your profession, though, I think to actively carve out time and even maybe in a digital space to listen to, to dialogue with people from completely different political, theological, socioeconomic, yeah. racial, ethnic, whatever, that takes effort. Yeah. And um, the the older that I get and the more I attend conferences and read books, the more I realize like, oh, this really does – a lot of it just comes down to an openness and willingness for conversation with people that we wouldn't – normally find ourselves yeah. within. And I think that's uh, that's just easier said than done. That's a really valid point that I hadn't really thought about. Like the default, I don't, in my busyness, I'm still going to interact and run into the people totally. who are close to me, who are like me. Totally. But the effort it takes to be around people who aren't like me, where I wouldn't normally run into them just in day-to-day activities, sometimes it's just that busyness that, uh, that stops us. So uh, Michelle Obama there, she was talking uh, to Jenna Bush Hager about cancel culture. And she mm. says, my hope is that they, being the next generation, will be open-minded and secure in who they are so that they can welcome other people's stories into the mix. But it has to begin with us. I think that's a great, uh, that's a great um, encouragement to the How next dare generation. you? How dare you quote someone like Michelle Obama? <laughs> that was a joke. That was, <laughs> that was it. <laughs> if she were sitting here right now, you know what I would do with her? Share a handshake. Mm. We would share a handshake. Thanks for getting one more in there. That uh, that really rounds the segment up. <laughs> so we'd love to know. I'd especially be curious, uh, careful what you ask for, I guess, but I'd especially be curious to people who think, nope, you're wrong on this, that, that it's not appropriate yeah. to interact with people that you disagree with vehemently. Because politically, Michelle Obama and George W. Bush are going to disagree more than they agree. Uh, but spin it forward to religion. Uh, is it appropriate to be... Uh, to be interacting with people that maybe don't share your beliefs. Yeah, I think that's a great question and one that I think Brian and I have probably shown our cards exactly. consistently. I think it's not only okay, I think it's actually really, really helpful. Absolutely. So you can do that at the Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. That is The Common Good Radio Show. We're, we're glad that you're joining us today. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian and from You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, We're going to talk about a bit of a crazy story that was on CNN uh, about 
white vans and the fear spreading across the uh, across the country about white vans. But before we do that, Ian, talk to us a little bit about Food for the Poor. Yeah, so we've been partnering with Food for the Poor uh, for quite some time, actually, and there is a legitimate humanitarian crisis in Haiti. We had uh, Todd and Paul both in studio, honestly telling me stuff that I I think I had a sense of. I didn't realize quite how dire it was, to be honest. Like hearing some of their first-person accounts was was really, really intense. And so here, here's kind of what we're doing. Um, $80 provides food for a year and water for life for one child. So if you do the math, what we're really asking is $320. That's a one-time gift, which breaks down to about $27 a month. Provides food for a year and water for life for an entire family of four. And uh, we, especially this Christmas season, when we talk a lot about, you know, what it means that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world mm-hmm. and how can we, this is a really, really tangible, practical way that we can partner with Food for the Poor. So if you're listening, either live or via the podcast, you can do one of two things. One, you can pick up the phone and call 855-901-4673. That's 855-901-HOPE. Or you can just go to 1160hope.com and you can click on the Haiti Humanitarian Crisis button there. It just honestly takes like two or three minutes. And we're uh, we're challenging people to step up and to find it in your heart and in your checkbooks to come alongside. And if you've listened to any of the shows in the past week, you've heard some of the stories of moms making pies, cookies out of mud just to trick the kids' stomachs or talking about uh, how impossible it is to find clean water. And if... Maybe 320 it doesn't even scratch the surface for you. We also have another offer called the Business Benefactor. If you're a business owner or you make decisions for your business, um, for a one-time gift of $1,000, which will all go to Food for the Poor, you will receive 40 one-minute commercials that will air right here on AM 1160 between 5 a.m. and 8 p.m. Monday through Friday, which is already a steal, to yeah. be honest. But all the money is going to Food for the Poor, mm-hmm. and so this is a chance for you to advertise your business, your ministry, your church, uh, almost anything you can conceive of. <laughs> I probably need to have like a little disclaimer. Like we do reserve whatever, whatever yeah. you want. And we would love uh, for a couple of people to step up and partner with us in that way and to uh, come alongside Food for the Poor to save save lives. Could you make a, I wonder if we can make a commercial just like about – you could do it like be about yourself. <laughs> Hi, I'm Ian. <laughs> hey, I'm Gary, and I'm a swell guy. Just 40 commercials 40 of, of, of Gary. Throughout the day. It's like not even a singles ad. It's just him being like, I like playing golf. Yep. I hope you have a Merry Christmas. <laughs> I hope you have – I would love – I would love for someone – Come on, like, Gary. <laughs> someone's got $1,000 burning a hole in their pocket, and they're like, yeah, that'd be fun just to take over the airwaves. <laughs> <laughs> Just declaring, so funny, like really benign information. Like, I drive a Dodge Stratus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of au gratin potatoes. This Just is funny. <laughs> hello, my name is Brian Fromm, and today I went to Chipotle. <laughs> Just like a just a, a benign recounting of your day that would be awesome. Or they like pauses for questions, like how was your day? <laughs> Just kidding. This is a commercial. I'm Gary. Hello, I'm Brian. This is what I would like for Christmas. <laughs> oh, oh, that's great. These that's are great. all really good ideas. I'm sure this yep. is what Food for the Poor had had in mind. If, as long as the thousand dollars comes in, it <laughs> helps. True, kids. it helps kids. So we'd we'd encourage you to do that. Uh, Here's a story that was on CNN but was going all around. Let me read this to you because it's both terrifying and funny all at the same time. Oh, it is? Terrifying rumors initially propelled by Facebook's algorithms have sparked fears that men driving white vans are kidnapping women all across the United States for sex trafficking and to sell their body parts. Oh, jeez. While there is no evidence to suggest this is happening, much less on a national coordinated scale, a series of viral Facebook posts created a domino effect 
that led to the mayor of a major American city issuing a warning based on the unsubstantiated claims. The latest online-induced panic shows how viral Facebook posts can stoke paranoia and make people believe that spotting something as common as a white van can be deemed suspicious and connected to nationwide cabal. Don't park near a white van, Baltimore Mayor Bernard Jack Young said in a TV interview Monday. Make sure you keep your cell phone in case somebody tries to abduct you. (laughs) The mayor said he had not been told of the apparent threat by by Baltimore police, but said it was, quote, all over Facebook. No, he probably should have checked with this police probably department. Should, and the next paragraph is about the police commissioner going, uh, we have not gotten any reports oh, no, this and that. So uh, when you hear that story, this is like everything that is that we talk about that is bad about social media. Oh, this isn't everything that's bad. That's a great point. That was very <laughs> hyperbolic of, my, of me right there. This is everything. This, is, this story encapsulates it all. You want to know what's wrong with Facebook, with Twitter, with Instagram? It's the white van story. Uh, <laughs> People are like, the what story? <laughs> the white man story? No, the white oh, man. Oh, boy. Uh, so, uh, okay, but it does highlight some of the dangers of social media and the importance of not believing everything you see online and the old saying that the lies can spread around the world before the truth gets out the door. Yeah, uh, I don't think that's the saying. It's close. It works. It works. <laughs> what do you do with this story? Okay, well, first, I, ha- I have a confession to make. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in high school, I had a creepy, no-window, gray Ford club wagon. Expected. with Right, of course, <laughs> with no benches. It was just an open so back area. <laughs> no, it was a van. It was a, oh, a, van. It was a yeah, okay. creepy gray van. Okay. Um, and it came with a like a voice alarm system. So when you would arm it, it would scream, system armed. And I would like drive up and down the block. Did it come with that? Yeah, it came with it. Yeah, that, that was a big selling point for me. This is all the least surprising thing I've learned about your high school. I would just drive up and down the street and like hit the button, system armed. People like run to their windows, whatever. Um, but the thing I'm really not proud of that I'm going to share with everybody now is <laughs> – uh, I used to I love you in confession time. <laughs> it's really not a good idea, but I'm I'm feeling uh, I'm feeling open. Um, so what we would do is we have somebody, a friend, like walk out of Walmart, and we'd stage this. And so I'd come flying up in our van, and I'd have friends in the back with ski masks on Stop. that would jump out of the back of the van, grab the person, throw them in the back, and we would take off. People you didn't and know. No, you no, always it was a friend. Them. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay. But we would. Sorry, I missed that part of yeah, the story. That was a like, really important part of the story. Thing you're no. doing. <laughs> yeah, Brian. Remember when I used to be a kidnapper? Hey, I need to step out and call the uh, Detroit or wherever you live, the uh, police department. Please. Wherever I lived, how long have we known oh, each Detroit. other? Detroit. I got Detroit. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we would do this a couple of times. We'd have someone else you know, kind of filming it, and we'd catch people's reactions, and we thought it was funny <laughs> until we got pulled over by the police, and uh, they thought it was a legitimate kidnapping. Of course, and they watched it happen. Uh, somebody called and they chased after us and pulled us over. So I'm still like a, a pretty naive 16 year old. So the cop comes to the window, all heightened, you know, and I'm like, sir, it's just a prank. It's just me and my friends and my buddy Mark, who's in the back, starts screaming. It's not a prank. Help me, no sir. Get me out of here. Way. And then that all. Yeah, that did not that did not go well. So that was, <laughs> that was sort of uh, loosely related to Ian confession time. That story's that's crazy. Well, what an interesting article here on CNN that you have here, Brian, that's about going viral. <laughs> I'm glad they got that off your chest. <laughs> I mean, I don't feel any better about it, but so we talk about this often. Uh, but speak again to especially us as Christians in the need for uh, for really trying to stick to what is true. 
yeah. uh, how difficult that can be sometimes, but kind of the higher bar that we should feel rather than the, I'm going to share everything on Facebook or pass yeah. it around as an email. Well, we did an article about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was an NPR uh, blog about like, here are like five ways to kind of help you become better at fact checking. Because I think this... This min- this misinformation problem is growing mm-hmm. to the point where even like a an elected official is like, hey, this is a problem, and the police chief is like, you should have called us first. I think Isn't that, that is a microcosm of part of the issue. Like, I get, I get panic culture. I get wanting to share right away. I get that it's kind of a killjoy to do yeah. two minutes of research to find out if it's legitimate. Yep, it is worth it. And I think that you brought up a good point. I think it's all the more an imperative for the Christ follower. I do too. If we're to be people of truth, mm-hmm. not to hyper-spiritualize this, I think we do have, dare I say, a responsibility I would agree. to be diligent in what we say, which also includes in what we post. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, oh, this is going to make me sound like a curmudgeon. I feel like there's a lot of like, oops, Daisy, didn't know that was false. Yes. You're like, no, we have to do better than yes. that. And I know that it's not. It can really ruin the momentum if you're like – because – and I, I I tweeted this yesterday. When we incentivize those who are fastest and shout loudest, mm-hmm. the inevitable conclusions I think are all but unavoidable. Like, And that's – because there's so much attraction to being the first person to share yes. or the first person to post or the first person to have a hot take, uh, I think it's making us less and less – we scrutinize less and less – about whether or not it's actually accurate. And that's, that's just a problem, I think. Agreed. And so I, we would challenge you to look at your own Facebook uh, habits, uh, your online habits, or you know, if you're still one of those people who forwards every email that comes to you to your whole list and things like that, <laughs> especially as we move into this election season, I think we as Christians need to have a higher bar than maybe even our culture does Agreed. about fake news and just Agreed. what may or may not be true. So uh, we would love to hear what you have to say. Coming up next... Uh, a feel-good story. Maybe you've been waiting for a, a, a just a happy a story to put a smile on your face. We're going to give you one next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, excited that you're joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. Before we jump into this feel-good story we were talking about, I've got an offer for our listeners. Just in time for the holidays, if you buy a set of Giza cotton sheets from MyPillow, you'll get the second set for free. That's two for one, and not only that, but you'll get free shipping. If you add anything else to your order, like MyPillows, mattress toppers, towels, anything, those items will also ship for free. So common good listeners, you could get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, but you have to use the promo code W. Y-L-L. I've been sharing over the last couple of days that my wife and I, we were able to get uh, some of the sheets. We got pillows and also the towels, uh, and they are, they are awesome. Sleeping like a baby, man, just in the Giza sheets. As someone with babies at home, sleeping <laughs> like a baby is not a good thing. Good point. <laughs> sleeping like an old person on the Giza sheets. <laughs> sleeping well. So all products have a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. So go to MyPillow.com. Click on the radio listener specials box and get two sets of Giza cotton sheets for the price of one, plus free shipping on your entire order. That's MyPillow.com. Click the radio specials box and enter promo code WYLL. Or you could call 1-800-489-0201. That's uh, 800-489-0201. Or go to MyPillow.com, promo code WYLL. Do you think I'll ever get my pillows? I, for your sake, I hope that you do. <laughs> the Giza sheets are wonderful. Because at this point, it just feels like you're rubbing it in. <laughs> like I feel like you're staring right at me, and you're like, are your sheets terrible, Ian? Yeah. <laughs> What's it like to sleep on burlap? <laughs> it's 
I mean, it's, you add the ashes to it, it really makes it a, <laughs> a whole biblical experience. Because it is not like the Giza sheet. So uh, we teased before going to break that we had a feel-good story from Such Good Morning tease. America. Uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us this story? Put a smile on our face Why here. don't I go ahead? Uh, so it opens up. It opens up emotionally. It opens. The article opens by saying this. For many teens growing up in the foster care system, life isn't always easy. If they're lucky, they're taken in by people who not only give them a home, but love and support, too. As teens in New York City's foster care system, Rose, Shaw, Gregory, and Dyer were placed in several homes before finding a place to call home. And it was all thanks to one man named Guy Bryant. Um, for 12 years, Guy Bryant has been fostering teens in Brooklyn, New York, and he's gone above and beyond to help kids who need homes. I've seen the worst. I've seen kids that come in and they've had no place to live. Guy told Good Morning America Friday, I had a good home. I've lived well in my family. Uh, we were a family, and I think everybody should have a family. Bryant started opening his doors to teens while he was working for the city's administration for children's mm-hmm. services and realized that older kids in foster care systems were the hardest to place in homes. That actually could be a segment for another day because mm-hmm. the diff- I didn't realize this until very recently how unlikely it is for older kids. Is that actually, right? uh-huh, Yeah, wow. it's uh, drastic. Since everyone wants the babies, they're cute, they're cuddly, said Guy, who is currently a foster parent to Rose, Shaw, Gregory, and Dyer. In the U.S., there are nearly 450,000 children in foster care. Of those kids, there are over 100,000 who are teenagers in need of homes. They go from place to place, so they're raised by a whole bunch of different people, and they have a whole bunch of different values, said Guy. People don't want the problems with somebody who is that age. Um, Charlotte Dawson said he had trouble with the guy with the way rules were structured at some of his previous foster homes before moving in with a guy. I was in homes where the fridges, were, <clears throat> excuse me, the fridge was locked. I couldn't eat when I wanted to. Um, now, simple things in guys' home like the kitchen is something that Shaw is most grateful for. Here, mm. we have our own space and we can create our own type of family. He said, like Shala, Gregory bounced from foster home to foster home before he met Guy. He says Guy gave him hope and made him feel like he belonged in his home. Now Gregory is enrolled in college and says it wouldn't have been possible without Guy. Meeting Guy was like, all right, there is someone out there. Mm. There's still more to gain than to just shut the world off, he said. Over the past 12 years, Guy has been a foster parent to more than 50 teens. Unbelievable. He's given each and every one of them unconditional love and support. They know I love them. I tell them all the time, Guy told GMA, it's important because some of them have never heard that. Mm. I, to me, and again, you mentioned it is feel good. Yeah. And I, neither of us have like a hot take on this at all. No. But I hope that you're hearing these quotes from these teenagers that are like, I have, n- I didn't even really realize this kind of care and affection yeah. was possible. And I know some of you listening, you came from really jacked up homes. Maybe you weren't in foster care, but your dad was really emotionally absent yep. or your parents were always fighting or drinking or they were gone, whatever it is. I know that probably a lot of people can resonate with that. I, I think if, and I would encourage you to go to the Facebook page and actually read the whole article and watch the video because it, it is, it is so moving and so mm. like what's right with the world. Yes. Like this isn't, you, we could be on totally different theological planes, philosophical, political planes. We, you read something like this and it feels like the whole world goes, Yes, more yes, of them. that's more of what we need, yeah. right? And that's that's part of what I appreciate about this guy's story. So on Good Morning America, uh, they surprised him with several of his former foster kids who came to say thank you. Right? Uh, what a cool moment! So as Ian said, I'd encourage you to click on the link uh, and watch it. You know, the, I think the most uh, impactful part of that story is where they're interviewing one of the kids, and he says that being a part of just guy's home, right? Being in a home with somebody who cared for him and loved him, basically opened his eyes to what was possible. Right. Like he basically I forget the exact quote, but the kid was like, 
being here made me basically say there's hope there there's there's go, there's a future there can be something and uh man what a picture of what i think we're called to be as christ followers people who who enter into people's lives and and kind of open up this possibility of hope that not everything is as dark you know there there is darkness there is struggle there is pain but but it doesn't that doesn't always have to win out and this guy you know he's as is often the case in stories like this, he seems super humble. Right. Uh, he's just like basically like I saw a need and I opened up my home, right? And what would the, how different would the world be if all of us not took and necessarily foster kids, but it, maybe some of you can. But if we took that that posture that said, "Hey, I saw a need that I could meet, and I did," right. uh, and if there was this movement of people going, "Hey, I saw a need and I met it," man, I really think. Uh, the change there would be would be seismic. Yeah. Well, and, and they're not a sponsor of the show or anything, but I cannot encourage you enough. If you're hearing this, you're thinking, man, maybe maybe I could be a part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Safe Families. If you yes. worked with Safe Families at all, yes. safe-families.org. Uh, here's essentially how they describe it. Um, founded in 2003, Safe Families for Children surrounds families in crisis with caring, compassionate community. We are a volunteer-driven nonprofit that provides hope and support to families in our local communities, located in 70 cities across the U.S. Mm-hmm. I did not know that. And in many situations, parents or guardians may be incapable of providing a safe and caring environment for their children, uh, which r- runs the gamut from, like, mm-hmm. serious addiction that they need to get clean. But sometimes they, like, just broke a limb and they need to, like, heal up and yep. they, like, can't care. So you can sign up to be a part of Safe Families. And we have a number of people at our church that are doing this nice. where a, a parent just needs – three weeks yep. to get back on their feet or to get their head on straight. And so someone, and there's a whole bunch of training and verification you have to go right. through, but they just take in the kid and it's a little less intense than like full fledged foster right. care. In fact, it's kind of to keep them out of, out of the foster out of care. Fo- system, well, yeah. because there's a lot of problems in the foster exactly. care system and we don't have time to talk about all of that, but this is like such, <clears throat> such a beautiful ministry and it's connecting kids. Sometimes it's as little as a week, I think as much as three months um, but you can even specify like yep. what is your bandwidth, what yep. is your, and you can even, you know, you can even choose like what range of age you'd be comfortable with. Yeah. It's just, uh, yeah, safe-families.org. It's awesome. This Christmas season, if you're feeling at all stirred, this, this is a great organization. And I think you use a great word there about being stirred. Like part of it for me is none of us are sitting out there, I would think, going, I don't want to help people. Right. But it's like just knowing what are the needs around you that you might have the possibility to meet. This guy, this guy, guy in the story he basically – it doesn't – it's not surprising that he worked in the system. Right. So he was around it, and he goes, okay, I see this, this is a problem. huge, huge right. need. So some of it is just getting yourself educated to what are the needs in Naperville or Downers Grove where we live or uh, wherever it is that you live. What are the needs, and what are the things that you can do, the church can do, um, that, that doesn't have to necessarily rely on the government to take care of? Uh, and, and sometimes it's just baby steps, right? It's like, what is mm. one thing I could do? Maybe the first step is to educate. Maybe you're like, I just want to help homeless people. Educate yourself about the homeless problem. Start to talk to people who are uh, who are running organizations that help. And I'm guessing doors are going to open and eventually you're going to find your spot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we'd encourage you to do that. And we'd love to hear your stories. We'd love to highlight these types That's of great. stories. Uh, so we would love to hear those stories. And as Ian said, feel free to go to Safe Families. Uh, that is a wonderful organization. If this type of help, helping kids who are kind of falling through the cracks, is is your heartbeat, I would I would really encourage you to go there. Yeah, and even if that's not, figure out. You know, one of the things we say at community is what makes your heartbeat fast. You know, like pay attention to those. Th- that's the thing that I find 
in a lot of pastoral counseling, a lot of times people feel like oh, I blinked and 30 years passed. 100%. And I have a decent job that pays well and I'm grateful for the life I have. But I feel like God planted this seed or this dream or this idea and I just never really leaned into it. You know, yep. I think uh, God, stories like this for me are like a reminder like, oh, man, people are still doing good in the world. Yes. And – we can too. Absolutely. So go to our Facebook page. We would encourage you to watch the video. It's a tearjerker, uh, and you will be better off for doing so. Coming up next, we're going to end the show the way we end every show with inter- interweb insanity. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm, and That can only mean one thing. It is the end of the show. It is Interweb Insanity, where our producers, PJ, Keith Conrad, they find stories on the internet. We haven't seen them. We read them. And then uh, we either laugh with you, we cry with you, we cringe with you, whatever uh, it might be. I'm going to let you go first. Wow. So generous of you you this Christmas season, Brian. New York, Santa's subdued stabbing suspect on train after New York City's SantaCon. Okay, four things about that headline. (laughs) Uh, one, that's amazing. Two, I've never heard of SantaCon. Oh, okay. Have you heard of SantaCon? I've never attended, but I've heard of it. You have? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, I'm just going to stop it too because now I feel like I'm out of the loop. <laughs> uh, Santa's descend uh, descended upon New York City on Saturday and brought more than Christmas cheer. Several men partaking in SantaCon, an annual tradition in which uh, revelers bar hop in festive costumes. Sub- oh, I thought it was more like a Comic-Con thing. Uh, I thought it was. <laughs> oh, bar hop. I see. Yeah. I see. So, oh, that's why Brian Fromm was so, so familiar it with it. Yeah. Subdued a stabbing suspect aboard a Long Island Railroad train, officials said. Two men were fighting on the train leading from Manhattan to Long Island around 6 p.m. when one of them, a man who was allegedly drunk, at 6? Come on, man. <laughs> shouting homophobic comments and wielding a knife, stabbed a 22-year-old in the leg, according to the New York Daily News. That's when a group of Santas jumped to the rescue and restrained the man. A video posted to Twitter shows the bystanders subduing the man as people aboard the train heard shouting uh, at them to stop. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Do you know what scene that is? Die Hard? No, 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 no. That's the that's the uh, Santa boot on the face of little Ralphie. Oh, I just watched a movie like this weekend. Did you really? Yes, I watched it with my daughter. <laughs> yes, that's it. All right, Indiana. Uh, police say man's paper license plate in crayon led to car theft arrest. Oh. A homemade paper license plate scrawled in crayon in a grocery bag led to the arrest of an Indian, Indiana man in a stolen car. Initially, Indiana troopers thought Joshua Lewis Brown was a 20-year-old stranded motorist from New York uh, in need of a tow after blowing a tire Friday afternoon. Trooper Woodcox was preparing to oblige Brown in his request. However, uh, the homemade paper license plate DJ39RK handwritten in crayon on a grocery bag, raised obvious suspicion. (laughs) After conducting a vehicle identification number check, Woodcox discovered that the Toyota Corolla had been reported stolen the day before out of State College, Pennsylvania. Lewis Brown was jailed on charges of possession of stolen property and operating without a license. He also faces charges in Pennsylvania. Wait, you changed your name to McLovin? McLovin? What kind of a stupid name is that? (laughs) Well, inside baseball, we uh, we wrap up each one of these with a cue to John to play the sound effect. And you are notorious for fake landings. <laughs> you like start to slow down. You're like, nope, I got more to say. <laughs> and I can I can just see it on John's face. So his, his hand. He's like, oh, no, that, the no, not yet. Okay, uh, Wisconsin woman calls police because of KFC worker. Oh boy, this is gonna go weird. 
A woman hated the service at KFC so bad she called the police. That's it. The incident happened on Saturday night in Waukesha, Wisconsin. The woman ordered a chicken sandwich. Once she got her food, she complained that it wasn't made correctly. After the KFC worker offered to make her another sandwich, the woman called 911 to complain about the employee's (laughs) attitude. (laughs) Gosh. When the police arrived, the woman didn't feel comfortable eating the new sandwich and wanted a refund. The authorities said this was not a police issue. What's the matter, Colonel Sanders? Chicken? (laughs) Can you imagine even making that call? I don't like this boy's attitude. (laughs) Ma'am, why are you calling us? Georgia. A man calls police three times to confess confess he stole a car and beer. A man apparently felt so bad about breaking the law that he called police three times to confess. Wow. Lieutenant Tim Watkins uh, said that a man called at 5 a.m. Friday to say that he had stolen a car in Thomasville and was about 12 miles away in a smaller town of Boston. A Boston police officer went looking for the Chevrolet Impala uh, and a 29-year-old Quint Rashed Lankford, but could find neither. Lankford called back again and finally a third time to say he had broken into a convenience store and was drinking beer. Beer. He wanted to confess and turn himself in. He called three times, but that wasn't enough for the police to track down and arrest Lankford. The car was later found in Thomasville. Lankford was charged with second-degree burglary and theft charges are pending. He's jailed awaiting a bail hearing. Uh, and it's unclear whether he has a lawyer. Uh, no, you got the wrong number. This is 912. Oh, gosh. Okay. All right, last but not least, thank goodness we got a Florida one in. Police yes. horse goes through Starbucks drive through line. How is this even a story? Even horses need their caffeine fix, apparently. Pinellas? Pinellas Park Police posted photos of one of their officers going through the Starbucks drive through line with his horse <laughs> named Dash. The photos show Fico sitting on the horse as he places his order with cars in front of and behind him. Dash told Officer Fico that he wanted a cappuccino but didn't want to go inside, police wrote. (laughs) Hello, I'm Mr. Red. (laughs) You've got to see the picture of this. The picture is great. He's just sitting in the line behind other cars. How slow going is the crime in whatever city this is? (laughs) That This is like a full-fledged story and the police are making... Cappuccino horse jokes, and yep. you you have to be careful if you're in front of him because of his dash cam. Oh gosh! <laughs> At least no. this wasn't a main story. <laughs> it would behoove you to move on now. All right, we're done horsing around. We hope you had a great Are Wednesday. We <laughs> Join not. us tomorrow or not. Join us tomorrow from four to six. Free and Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. You're listening to the Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.